starting in verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Friend, do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place, that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. 
Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He's worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another girl saw him and said to the people there, This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them, for your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I do not know the man. Immediately, a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Let us pray. Father, we come before you at this time in the name of your Son. We come before you humbly. We come before you asking for your help at this time. Help us to, to see what a wonderful Savior we have in Jesus Christ at this time and through this passage. Help us to understand what He went through for us, to be moved by it, to be more faithful to You. Forgive us for the ways that we have failed to do that this week, today. Help us to make plans and to prayerfully set our lives as we read in Psalm 90, to number our days aright, to number our moments and our schedules and our intentions aright. We may gain a, a heart of wisdom, not just for ourselves, but for the coming generations. Lord, help us to know what it means to, to be godly in this age and 
to be ready to stand with Christ no matter the cost. Help us to be faithful to your word. And thank you that Christ himself was faithful through all of his life, even to this very moment, that he's seated at your right hand, reigning and ruling in the hearts of his people until the last number of those who will believe in him is brought to faith and he comes to take us to himself. Lord, we we pray at this time for those who are in the midst of the, the war that's going on in places like Gaza. We understand that as Christ foretold, there will always be wars and rumors of wars and there will not be peace in this world. But all things are possible with you and we do ask that you would bring peace in that place at this time and bring peace between those nations. Yes, it is hard for us to picture that, especially after what history has shown us. But again, we ask it because you are able. Lord, we ask along with this that whatever your will is in regards to that, we know what your will is for your people, for your church, for all the local churches that are in existence right now in that region. And we ask that you would help them to shine as we just sung about in their small corner. May the gospel shine brightly in the midst of that darkness. May they be faithful to both proclaim and bear witness to who Christ is and the kind of peace and unity that He can bring for those who believe in Him. And so we ask that there would be a move of the Spirit through the faithfulness of Your Word, through the Gospel, through Your people being faithful to You in that region. We pray that there would be repentance in some of those highest leaders, not just in the governments, but in the the armies and the rebels. Lord, we ask the same for our leaders in this country. That those who don't yet know you would come to bow the knee to Christ as Lord and Savior. That the evidence of that would be seen in their lives, in their policies. From the King of England all the way down to our governor here. as it has been seen in the past, that you would help people to be faithful to you in those positions of authority, to remember that you are the one who puts people in their position as well as removes them, and that we will all stand accountable to you. So indeed, help us again as we look at Christ in this passage of Scripture. Help us to... Learn what it means to follow Him. and Give us the, the wisdom to know how to apply these truths to our own lives in ways that only You can show us. So meet us each where we need to be met at this time. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable to You, Father. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. On the off chance that anyone just came in while we were praying, 
like to invite you again to turn and focus with me in pages 703 to 704, Matthew chapter 26, verse 36 through 75. I've entitled this sermon, The Suffering Servant, Part 1. Part 1 of likely three parts as we now move through what's called the week of the Passion, where Jesus is walking with a lot of weight on the way to Calvary. As we study the life of Christ on His way to the cross, the climax of His earthly ministry. And the reason that I've chosen this title is because I think it's helpful for us to uh, maybe later on go back and read the first portion of Isaiah 53, where the prophet Isaiah um, gives this title, this inspired title for the coming Messiah, the suffering servant of God. And my first three points this morning are based off of the verses in that passage, Isaiah 53. The first point that I want us to see is that he was a man of sorrows. He was a man of sorrows. Secondly, he was despised and rejected by everyone. And thirdly, he was like a lamb led to slaughter. Like a lamb, like a sheep, silently led to the slaughter. And last, a question. Will we stand with Christ to the end? Will we stand with Christ? Let's turn then to this first point. He was a man of sorrows. As you look at this passage in the first 10 verses of this section of Matthew 26, Jesus went with his disciples, starting at verse 36. Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. Now this garden of Gethsemane was a a small part of a larger olive grove, I guess you could call it. A larger portion on that hill that was filled with olive trees. But the Garden of Gethsemane itself was actually the place, or at least one of the places, if not the main and only place in that olive grove, where they would actually press the olives to make olive oil. I'm sure we all have used and appreciate olive oil many different things. It's one of the oldest um, types of oil. Lots of benefits. But to press olives and to get oil from them requires a lot of pressure. The name Gethsemane means oil press. And I don't think that it is anything short of divine planning and precision, nothing like an accident, that it's in the Garden of Gethsemane that we see Jesus, in a sense, like an olive being pressed down. And notice why he leads his disciples there. This is a favorite place of his to come and pray. Maybe you have a favorite place to pray in your house or somewhere in your yard. Maybe... Maybe many of us in this age that we're living in, maybe we don't even think about things like that. 
having a spot where we will pray. Prayer is something that we as Christians need to be clear is vital to the life of every individual believer and of every local church. And history has proven this to be the case. And studies recently done, which are not inspired but are useful, have proven this to be the case. You can tell a lot about the life and health of an individual Christian and a local church by the life of prayer or the prayer meetings. Jesus took his disciples for the purpose of prayer. Before he chose them, he spent the entire night in prayer. Every significant thing that we see Jesus and all the other servants of God throughout history doing. What preceded that event? What preceded the move of the Spirit of God was prayer. And I want you to see the pressure that Jesus is feeling here as he prays. As he gets closer to Calvary, we see these words, sorrow, sorrowful, repeated a few times. And we see the word pray or prayer or prayed repeated about five times, maybe six times, depending on the translation you're using. Again, he is the fulfillment of this prophecy that he was a man of sorrows. He says, sit here while I go over there and pray. Jesus, unlike the disciples, although he's been telling them, he knows fully what is about to take place. And unlike Peter, who says, I will never deny you, Jesus is fully aware that in his humanity, he cannot carry out this task apart from falling before the throne of his Father for help. And he says, keep watch with me. His face to the ground. He falls down and prays. And I want you to think about what is it that is causing this sorrow? What is it that is overwhelming his soul to the point of death? Have you ever had sorrow in your soul? You ever felt spiritually depressed? You ever been so afraid of something that it's overwhelming you? Maybe you don't think these things should be applied to Christ, but I want to tell you this morning, as a true human being, without sin, but truly human, Jesus was undergoing these kinds of things and more. And he was undergoing them in a way that none of us have come close to. It's not good to compare ourselves to anyone else most of the time. However, we must try to put ourselves next to our Savior and think about what he went through, understanding that he did it so that he can sympathize with us in our moments of grief and sorrow and loneliness and fear. Look at verse 39 again. What is the heart of this prayer? My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not what I will, 
but your will be done. Whatever this cup was, we're told in the Gospel of Luke, in the parallel account in chapter 22, that the pressure was so great that the sweat, which they would have normally had, the sweat that didn't just come from the heat, though, in his case, but came from the level of fear and concern over what he was about to go through, turned into blood. Sweat drops of blood. And I want to take the opportunity here to correct a hymn that is dear to many of us. And just a, a word of caution here. Hymns, songs, they're, they're not inspired. There's only one inspired, written account in this world. And that is the Bible. There's a hymn that we, we all know and probably treasure. I, I do as well. And it says this. He had no sweat. He had no, no, no fear for his own grief. He had no tears for his own grief, I think it says. But sweat drops of blood for mine. I want you to understand something. I look forward to talking about some of these things tonight. It was not tears and, and sweat drops of blood for our grief that Jesus was focused upon when he was bowing before the Father and genuinely asking if there's a way for this cup to be removed please do it it was the unhinged unmitigated indescribable wrath of God for himself that was crushing him as Isaiah says he was crushed for our iniquities and as he prayed to the father for help and even possibly another way the focus while it was love for us that was driving him as well as love for the father or let's reorder that love for the father and love for us while it was love I want you to understand, I want us to think carefully about this. All of our songs and our hymns must be interpreted and reinterpreted and sometimes put to the side by Scripture. We need to understand what is true, not by songs or anything else, but again, Father, let this cup pass from me. This was a divine moment between the Son and the Father. This was Jesus' last opportunity to humanly, with reverence, ask if there's another way. This cup of wrath was nothing short of hell. He was not thinking about the thorns that were going to be placed on his head. He was not thinking about all of the other things, including the nails that pierced through his hands and feet. He was not thinking about what human beings were going to do to him or to abandon him like his friends did. In fact, it's even possible in his humanity again that he didn't know the precise nature of all of those things as they were going to unfold. But one thing that he did know was that he was going to drink this cup which was prophesied about from various different prophets in the Old Testament. And that cup specifically has to do 
with nothing that human beings do to the servant of God, but what God himself, the Father, did on that cross. And as he thought about that, it was literally crushing him down to the point where blood was coming out of his pores as he thought about that. Yet, even though Jesus knew that's what he was going to do, you notice on the one hand, he doesn't say, well, I know the plan, God is sovereign, let's keep going. The reality of life, whatever your journey, whatever your path, whatever your cross is to bear, we have to be realistic as Christians. And we see here that courage and strength is not the absence of fear, but how we respond to genuine fear when we see it, when we feel it, how we respond to loneliness, how we respond to complete abandonment at times. And for now, the Spirit and angels and the loving fathers very much present but at that moment on the cross that Jesus is looking to, and I'll get more into this, he will also be present. It's another hymn that how deep the Father's love for us. It says the Father turned his face away. The Bible doesn't teach us that. God is all present, omnipresent. What does David say in Psalm 139? Even if I went down to the depths of hell, he says, you would be there. That might be mind-boggling. But the point is that God's presence is everywhere. But it is God manifesting Himself. God making Himself known. God acting in different ways for different reasons. The presence of God on the cross was not like the presence of God throughout the entirety of Jesus' life and ministry. Because Jesus was looking to a moment when he would be punished for a countless number of sins and be crushed for the weight of the penalty of sinners. Yes, there was grief as well for the fact that he, the pure, sinless, spotless Lamb of God, was going to be clothed in guilt and in shame. And in dishonor, he was going to be clothed in a sense when God was punishing him for our sin and have to bear the weight of all of our unfaithfulness. This was something Jesus, for all of eternity and all of his human life, had never felt before. And God hates sin. And God is repugnant. God is he hates the, the, the flavor, the, the concept of sin. And Jesus was going to be clothed in this unrighteousness. So even that was part of it. But I submit to you, it is the fear of God. Remember what that, that passage says? The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Well, here is the one who is wisdom personified. And he is not acting foolishly. He is afraid. He is truly afraid of what he's going for. But you know what he's going to do? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He's going to rise up 
and turn himself over. Which brings us to our second point, despised and rejected. Before I say anything there, a good question to ask when we look at Christ under pressure is this. Where do I turn? Where do I turn to? What do I turn to? Who do I turn to when the pressure of life is greatest? He was despised and rejected, secondly. Look at this account when Judas comes to Jesus. And Judas says to the people who he's leading, the one I kiss, he's the one that you are to arrest. Just picture this scene. He comes to Jesus and he embraces him, he kisses him. By the way, just to be clear, don't like to talk about this, but I have to. It wasn't a kiss on the lips. Some crazy person would probably try to make a point out of that, but this was the way that they greeted each other back then. It was a respectful, affectionate kiss on the cheek. There was nothing effeminate about it. This was just a common greeting of someone who's a friend. Maybe you have felt the, the sting of betrayal. I started talking about this last week. Maybe you have felt that. But I would, I, I would imagine that what felt worse than being betrayed by people who lied about him and said things that were untrue that were not that close to him was being betrayed by a friend. Now, I, I said that last week we, we saw that Judas was a false disciple. But notice here, and I don't think in, in verse 50, I don't think Jesus is actually using sarcasm. Some of us have this kind of personality, or maybe we, maybe we come out of a culture that uses a lot of sarcasm, or maybe we think that's you know, cool. Maybe we're a little bit insecure, so we use sarcasm. Verse 50, when Jesus says, Friend, do what you came for. I don't think that's sarcasm. I think Jesus is saying, here's one who I cared for, who I lived with for three years. He ate from me. I was his provider. I did life with him. I think Jesus is saying, this is a person who I consider, or at least considered, a friend. Whether he's a false one or not, Jesus is genuinely saying, friend, do whatever you're going to do. And Judas does it. And they arrest him. It's one thing to be betrayed again by, or uh, disowned by people who are perhaps somewhat close, but by someone who's operated as a friend. That is a different kind of pain. And you notice immediately we see a couple of things in, that are important about Peter. First of all, Peter had a sword. Because he, he didn't have time. Remember, this is all happening in the night. Didn't have time to go quickly buy a sword at a shop. He pulled out a sword that he had on him. Maybe this was a common um, sword that was more of like a, a small dagger that people would have carried around in, the, in those times. Men in particular 
would have had as a, a means of protection because as they travel on the road these small daggers would have helped to pr protect and defend them and their company from thieves and robbers that would have been on the road so Peter after they arrest him he pulls out this sword and proves what a good fisherman he is because he I don't think he was trying to chop off the the ear of this man I think Peter was trying to probably behead him but maybe that wasn't his profession so he didn't have such a great aim and we're told in another parallel account that Jesus actually picks up the ear that's come off of this man and heals it right away he heals the ear of this man and he says to Peter put away your sword you you live by the sword you die by the sword and furthermore this is not the purpose for which I came I came to be turned over to them he'd been telling them about this and after this great pressure and after this betrayal from Judas Jesus says why are you coming out here with with swords and clubs every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me then you did not arrest me but then he says this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled and so he's teaching even in this moment he's teaching his disciples and those who are arresting him that what they're doing is to fulfill the very word of God and do you notice what happens next the same disciples starting with Peter who said they would never deny him we read these words then all the disciples deserted him and fled alone deserted disowned this brings us to the third point and they take Jesus off now and thirdly, we see that he was like a lamb led to the slaughter. Verse 57 reads this way. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas. You remember at the beginning of this chapter, um, you see Caiaphas and the elders and the high priest, the chief priest. They're all in his house trying to figure out what's a good way for us to, what's a good way for us to get a hold of Jesus and kill him. So now he's been arrested. And they take him in that same night to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter. Now, I think, I think the Spirit perhaps was inspiring Matthew to give us this order where he begins by showing that Peter, even though he denies Jesus, he was actually the only one that, as far as we know, followed him this closely. To Caiaphas's house we got to take it easy on Peter sometimes you know we all have a little Peter in us but he loved his Lord he loved Jesus and he was still right there he didn't go much further but he stopped there and he wanted to see what would be the outcome and then we have a mock trial no trial that had to do with execution especially amongst the Jews of this time, would have ever taken place at night. The sheer fact that they arrested him in the night, they took him and started this so-called trial at night, was all a clear picture of the darkness and the deception of these Jewish men. 
it was a kind of rebuke, I think, for the Jews who would have been reading this in, in, in the day when Matthew would have started to send this gospel out. The Jews hearing this gospel account would have said, wait a minute, we really did this in an underhanded way. It, it should have caused them to think, why is it that we didn't do it the correct way? And this is the, this is the hope, I think, of, of God through the, the, the pen of Matthew patiently calling the Jewish nation to see this is the Messiah, the one who was crucified. But as Jesus said when they arrested him, it had to happen to fulfill the prophecies. And so you see this mock trial. And the high priest says, aren't you going to answer in verse 62? Aren't you going to answer? Jesus is silent. He gives no answer. You see this repeated over and over. Silent. And I think this is also a good lesson for us. We may find ourselves in situations where we are, in a sense, on trial. But we don't always have to answer back. Maybe this is a, a good word for some of us who are a little bit more involved in social media. In an age where we can just quickly, bleep, you know, all the noises. Twitter, Facebook. We feel as if we have to get our word out. We have to have a say. We have to say something. Sometimes the best thing you can do is just keep your mouth or your fingers closed and pray to God. But Jesus in this moment knows that this whole thing is a sham. He needs to give no answer. But you notice when he does give an answer, in verse 63, the high priest says to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, he's the, he doesn't respect the high priest. He might respect the office. He doesn't respect this man. He doesn't fear him. But he has now publicly said, under the living God, tell us, and here's the question, are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? And this is the purpose for which Jesus and His church exists. To say, He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And so Jesus says, Yes, it is as you say. Furthermore, He goes on to say, In the future, you will see the Son of Man. There's that, that title again. The, the position of authority that Daniel got the vision about. The one who is equal to the Ancient of Days, who receives worship from all nations. He says, you will see me, in other words, sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tears his clothes, which was a, a sign of being grief-stricken, being torn up by something you've just heard. It was a symbolic response to blasphemy. That's why he says, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? And in his actions and in his carrying on, he, he further convinces and leads those around him to think the same thing. What do they say? They agree with him in verse 66. He is worthy of death. And then they spit in his face. Despised. Disowned deserted, 
disrespected? This is God incarnate. This is the one through whom all things were made. They spit in his face. And they struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, despised and rejected. He was mocked. But still he he walked like a lamb to the slaughter. You ever seen that picture? Or a sheep to the shearing? Notice that the lambs, that the sheep, they just go. This is part of the reason he uses this imagery. They just walk along. They don't even understand what's happening. Jesus knew. Take your, your, your mind and let your imagination go back to Abraham and Isaac. You remember when he was put through the ultimate test? He took Isaac up to the top of that mountain, which was not too far from where Golgotha stands. 2,000 or so years before this moment. Isaac didn't know what was going on. Abraham didn't ultimately know how it was going to end, but he had his hopes. We're told in Hebrews 11 that he believed since God had promised that the offspring and the the, the line with the Messiah would come through Isaac, he actually believed that God would raise him from the dead. In other words, Abraham believed in the resurrection. But Isaac was like a lamb, and he obediently went up that hill. And when Abraham raised the knife up, He wasn't intending to make a spectacle. He was going to use it until God said, No, I have provided a a lamb for you. What we see in, in this gospel account over the next chapter and a half is that what Jesus was walking towards was a moment when God the Father would take this cup of wrath, in a sense take the knife of His own justice, And not just hold it above Christ. But as Christ sits there in a sense. On the altar of the cross. God will drive the knife of judgment. Into the soul of his only son. And Jesus is receiving all of these things on the way. From sinners. And he did it. For us. And the more you think about this, the more you realize He did it for us and we don't deserve it. He did not do this because we are people who deserve these acts of love. God incarnate, the Son of God, God the Son, is allowing Himself to go through this. We were reading through, we are studying through Romans on Wednesday and we were looking at the end of chapter 12 where Paul reminds the Christians in Rome that God says vengeance is mine I will repay 
Peter, the same one who we'll see in this final point, who denies Christ, goes on to write, we, we need to be like Jesus, who, who was like a lamb led to the slaughter, and he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. This is a mockery. And in their blindness and their hatred and their love of self and their love of position, they're doing this to Christ. The, all, the only blasphemy that took place that night was everything that they did. As they mocked, struck, disrespected, deserted God. Which brings me to the final point. Will we stand with Christ? We see Peter there again in verse 69 to verse 75, sitting in the courtyard. And notice, Peter is so quick in, in, in self-confidence to say, I will never, even if all of these guys sitting next to me, all the rest of the twelve, even if they desert you, I won't desert you. Oh, no, no, not me, because I'm Peter. Okay, just take a look at how God humbles Peter now. A little servant girl, first of all, comes to Peter. Is it? You also were with Jesus of Galilee. Little girl. It's a big man, right? <laughs> Little girl comes and he says, No. He denies it before them all. Again, he doesn't know what, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Then he went away. Not only does he deny it, he steps a little bit further back. This is like this is like the picture in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not do certain things. And you see the, the, the sort of downgrade. Who doesn't uh, stand, who doesn't, who doesn't walk, who doesn't stand, and who doesn't sit in the way of the sinner, etc. But instead does something else. But look at Peter. Now he's stepping back a little further to the gateway. Where another girl comes and sees him and says... This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. <laughs> Putting aside the accent, look at the first part of that verse. Surely you are one of them. I think this is just so clear, not just in, in Matthew, but through the whole Bible. There's really two kinds of people in this world. And you hear all this language about so-called love today. and Well, let's not use an us versus them mentality. Friends, to stand with Christ is to stand with a certain them. And for those of us who believe, it is to be with us, with Jesus. Jesus himself says it in Matthew 12. Anyone who is not with me is against me. It has to be that you're against Christ if you're not with him. For God has sent his son to undergo all of this. Even what we're seeing before the cross. And for anyone to say, I will not walk with Jesus. I will not follow him. I will not embrace him. I will not seek to be like him. I will not stand with him. You are against God. That is the reality. So they say, surely you're one of them for your accent gives you away. Then Peter began to call down 
curses on himself. And he swore to them. Some translations say he was swearing. Right? People make comments about sailors' mouth and stuff like that. He swore, I don't know the man. You realize what this is? This is denial by association. Or rather, denial by disassociation. This is the most common way that people deny their so-called Christian faith. And what happens immediately? I don't know the man. Cock-a-doodle-doo. I can promise you that was the most annoying, painful crow. We know about those that anyone has ever heard in the history of a cock-a-doodle-doo. The rooster crowed immediately. Then Peter remembered the word that Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. He went outside and he wept bitterly. This is the right response to our disowning our Lord and Savior. To sin. It is not the only response. It is the first step of true repentance. Psalm 51, when David is in the state of repentance, talks about the fact that God loves a a broken and a contrite heart. He receives that. Regret is not enough. And as we'll see next week, Judas didn't have much more than regret. Peter weeps tears of bitter repentance trusting in the goodness and the faithfulness of Christ to him. In fact, Jesus had actually told Peter, we see it in another gospel account, I'm forgetting now if it's Luke or Mark, Peter had actually told Jesus, Peter, Satan was seeking to to sift you like wheat, to to take you, to, to capture you, but I have prayed for you beforehand. When you are restored, he says, Strengthen the brothers. When you come back to that place of restoration. Two servant girls. Three denials. Denial by disassociation. And again you see this gradual departure that leads to denial. How many times in our lives. By not saying something. Or by saying something. That's not true. Or saying something in the wrong way. Because we. Fear the moment or the man or the woman have we disowned Christ. The good news is the one who has been despised and rejected, forsaken, deserted, this is the same one who has told us, I will never leave you or forsake you. Now that you think a bit more and there's more we can think about but as we meditate on this historical account think about these words again I will never leave you or forsake you think about the words that this gospel ends with and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age that is hope that that gives hope that gives courage that gives 
strength to see that Jesus both foretold these denials, but then as soon as a rooster crowed, it's as if the Spirit of God quickened Peter in his mind to remember. It says, then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. This is also another good reminder to us that we must be a people that are filled with the word of God. So that when we find ourselves in those periods of challenge or even sometimes denial, and we're quickened, we can have that word to strengthen our repentance, our restoration, our resolve. Jesus had already prepared Peter for this moment. Doesn't mean that it wasn't a denial. As you see, he wept bitterly. But Jesus not only prayed for him to repent and to be restored, but he comes and actually does the restoration himself. Maybe you remember the end of the Gospel of John. It's a different, slightly different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke in the way he talks about Jesus leaving this earth. In John 21, verses 15 through 19, we read these words. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, this is after the resurrection, this is just before he ascends. When they had finished eating, he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Third time, John 21, 17, a third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. He wasn't trying to make Peter feel bad. He was actually going through this three-step process, just like the three-step denial, to really challenge Peter and to help to restore his resolve. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Now, before you start to think, well, that sounds like as we get older, no, this is not talking about that. We're told what it means in verse 19. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. You hear that? We can glorify God by the way we not just live, but how we die. In fact, we're, we're told the historical accounts, which are very clear, make it um, known to us, make known to us that Peter was crucified. And he, he felt that he was so unworthy that he did not want to be crucified like Christ. So he, he requested that he be crucified upside down. Different man, you read through the book of Acts, different man after he was restored. And Jesus says in verse 19 of John 21, then he said to them, to him, follow me. Follow me. That's the same way that he called Peter first. Do you remember that? 
And this is our, our call today too, to, to stay as those who follow Christ in an ever-changing world. But I just want you to allow yourself to, to see how much Jesus went through. Desertion. He's struggling with loneliness this morning. He's struggling with feeling abandoned or betrayed. You feel to the point where your, your soul is almost crushed, pressed down, oppressed, depressed. That, that, that you feel like you've been disowned, dishonored, disrespected. The list is long. Look at Christ afresh. He, this man of sorrows, he came and went through all of this so that we can do what we're told to do in Hebrews 4. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness. For we have a high priest who can sympathize with us in all of our weaknesses because he went through everything that we did. Isn't this a Savior and a God who is worthy of all that we are? Let us look to him now then in, in prayer together. Father, we ask that you would help us to learn from all of these things. Lord, help us as a church to be mindful of the shifting sands of, of culture, this culture, starting with our own culture around us and the changes we see in it. Help us to be a people that are not moved or shaken from being faithful to you because of the changes that we are experiencing. Maybe pressures at work, maybe pressures at home, in a, in a marriage, in a, in a lack of a marriage, in youth, in older age. Whatever our current season of life is and whatever our pressures are, may we learn that as surely as Christ had to come to you, that we must also, maybe literally, if not at least metaphorically, we must, we must fall down on our faces before you and plead with you to help us to be faithful to whatever your will is for our lives. And you have made clear to us, clear enough, what your will is for us as individual Christians, as families, and as your church. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you that Christ is here to restore us that that you have sent your spirit father that you have sent your spirit lord jesus after you ascended you sent him to indwell us so that we would have new hearts that follow you that repent and that walk on that narrow path of repentance and faith help us to do this together as a church all the more and to recognize that we must humble ourselves and we must come together all the more as times change and as the day of the Lord draws near to help each other to be faithful to your word. And we thank you that you are a great shepherd and you will not 
let go of any of your sheep. We praise you for this. And we 